Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. We're so grateful that you found us. The JCBC Podcast is a collection of sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. Right now, we're in a new series. It's called How to Be Human. We hope if you're in town or close by, you'll stop in and join us 11 o'clock Sunday mornings. Until then, subscribe and follow along. Friends, if you'll turn with me, please, in your Bibles, we're going to be studying the same verse that we began studying last week, but a click or two further. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. I'll be reading from the message version today. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn, and I love this phrase, the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The reading of the sacred word, it's reliable, and it can be trusted. Today we find ourselves in week 16, I believe it is, in our ongoing study called How to Be Human, we have been attempting to marvel with the writer of Genesis who says that we are created in God's own image and in God's own likeness, which means that we are created with God's own DNA coursing through us as God's image, but we are also made in God's likeness, which means that we are made in a way to live like we have been created in God's image. So we marvel with the psalmist who says, what are human beings that that you're mindful of them, mortals, that you care for them, yet you have made them a little lower than God, and you've crowned them with righteousness and glory, and, and yet you and I know if you live long enough that we don't always live up to or into that highest identity as creatures in the image and likeness of God. That's why we need a savior. So Jesus came to be that rescue. And Jesus, whose favorite title was Son of Man or the truly human one, came to show us the way, the truth, the life. And these past many weeks, we've been studying what it looks like to see our lives through the eyes of Jesus, who said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. So over the course of this study, we've been looking at all of the very real human experiences that have a tendency to threaten to undermine that life that Jesus came and died in order to provide. We've been looking at grief and anger. We've been looking at fear, rage, forgiveness. And these past two weeks, last week and today, 
we are conducting a short little mini-series in this human series on what it means to be exhausted. One of the greatest threats to our fullness of life is, is that some of us go through life perpetually pooped. Yeah. We are existentially exhausted. So these past two weeks, we're talking about what it means that God has encoded within the very rhythm of our life a prescription for a remedy, and that is Sabbath. Last week, I introduced Sabbath with this definition, that Sabbath is a divine rhythm of rest and renewal. And if you missed last week's sermon, I want to suggest that to you because in that sermon, if I had time to preach it again, I might preach it again and tell you that Sabbath reminds us why. That's what I would tell you if I had time. That it reminds us why we are here, that not only that, Sabbath also eliminates the illusion of indispensability. Yeah. That it eliminates the illusion of indispensability as if the world is tilted on the axis of me. It also does something else. It also sustains our God-given humanness. Sabbath does. It reminds us that we're made to be human beings and not just human doings. And Sabbath teaches us trust. But the same God who took care of us yesterday and who is currently at present taking care of us now will take care of us tomorrow so we can take a breath. Yeah. But see, last week when I spoke about Sabbath, I really told you why. It was all about why we ought to embrace Sabbath as a divine rhythm of rest and renewal. But today, I want to talk to you about how. Because I am absolutely convinced that there is someone who is gathered here on campus today who is perpetually pooped, existentially exhausted, and you know you need rest and you want rest and everything in your mind and body and soul longs for renewal and rest, but you don't know what to do about it. So I want to talk about that for just a few moments, but in order to talk about that, I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the ruthless elimination of hurry. And then I want to talk a little bit about, about why an off day is not the same as Sabbath. We're going to kick that around a bit. An off day is not the same as Sabbath. And then finally, I want to talk to you about the subversive power of praying and playing so the ruthless elimination of hurry, why an off day is not the same as Sabbath and the subversive power of praying and playing. So here we go, the ruthless elimination of hurry. So that title, it comes from a book written by John Mark Comer. And he tells, there's the book, I highly recommend it. It is rocking my world right now. He tells of the experience of talking to a friend and mentor, John Ortberg. Many of you know the name John Ortberg. You respect and love his writings. I sat with John Ortberg a few years ago in his office in Menlo Park in California, and he told me the story that he tells in this book, that one day as a minister at Willow Creek Church in Chicago, he was worn out. He was perpetually pooped, existentially exhausted. He was burning out. 
burning the candle at both ends. And so he reaches out to a mentor of his, Dallas Willard, who, if you know Dallas Willard, is just this spirituality genius. He writes of the spiritual disciplines. He's a theologian and writer who I have long admired many, many years. Ortberg reaches out to Willard and says, I am exhausted. He says, what do I need to do in order to become the me that I want to be? How do I do this without losing my sense of soul or my sense of self? What do I do? And Willard says to Ortberg, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So Ortberg wrote it down. He said, okay, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from my life. Great. All right, what else? He said, that's it. That's it. And you know, it's, it's true because hurry is the enemy to the spiritual life. Hurry is a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy time with God. Your connection with the one who knows you best and loves you most. Hurry does that. You know, you know what Corey Tinboom said about it? She said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Come on, somebody. Isn't that right? Because sin and busyness do the same thing in the soul. It clutters the soul and keeps us from a connection we desperately need with God. The great psychotherapist Carl Jung also had a word or two said about, about hurry. He said, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. Now think about this for just a moment. When we live life at such a high speed that we have to rush and hurry and speed through every relationship, every conversation, every moment, the truth is you cannot grow with God and you cannot be transformed unless there is some time to reflect, some time to, to debrief what just happened in my week last week and what, what does all this mean and where is all this going? We are the most busy and the least reflective people in the history of our species. We have more devices that are intended to free up our lives and yet are we any less stressed? Are we any less busy? The truth is you and I, when we hurry, make no room to reflect. And when we grow in God, it requires room for us to, I don't know, just sit a minute in solitude, in silence, to remember, to give thanks, to daydream, to hope. But the trouble is we're so busy that our busyness smothers our calendar until there is no room in it to simply be still and know that God is God. So what do we do about it? Years ago, I'll never forget, and I think I've told a couple of you this story. It was my first week as a senior pastor, about a hundred years ago in pastor years. Pastor years are different than regular years. And about a hundred years ago, I walk into this office in East Tennessee, and they were proud because now they had a new pastor and they had computers. 
They had now had a new computer come to the office and it was going to be great. I walk in one day and Irene Webb, one of my favorite mortals who has ever lived, she's 83 years old at the time. She's the hardest working person I'd ever been with, ever, ever had the pleasure of partnering in ministry with. She would be the one who, because our folding machine was a little off kilter, she'd take all the bulletins home and with her arthritic hands every weekend, hand fold all the worship guides. That's what kind of person she is. I walk in and I see her that morning and she's sitting at this new computer and she has a ruler holding it up next to the screen. And she's hitting the space bar. I said, Irene, what you doing? She said, oh, I'm a setting my margins. (laughs) Is that not the most beautiful thing you've ever heard? So I showed her one or two little shortcuts and she she said, I declare. I love that memory because it it was a a moment then, just as it's a moment right now to remind us, if you want to grow in Christ, if you want to know God, if you want to have time to Sabbath and be rested from your existential exhaustion, you got to set the margins. Your life has to have margin in it. And it's been defined this way, margin, it's been said, is the space between our load and our limit. Everybody has a load. Everybody has a burden to bear. As an old farmer friend of mine once said, Sean, every tub's got to sit on its own bottom. Everybody's got a load to bear, but everybody has a limit too. And depending on how much space you have between your load and your limit, will determine how much margin you have. And if you have very little margin, if you're always at the very edge of your limitation, there is no room in there to reflect, to grow, to give thanks, to simply sit and be transformed by the presence and the company of a living and loving God. You've got to have margin. Do you have margin in your life? Because God institutes the commandment for Sabbath in order to insist that you set your margins first. You don't set your margins at the end of the paper. You set your margins first. So he takes these Israelites who are now 400 years as slaves. He takes them out of slavery, out of their slavery mindset, out of the pharaonic mind where all we do is make things and my value is only defined in how many bricks I can produce by the end of the day. That's all I'm here for is to do, to do, to do. And God takes them out of Egypt and in the wilderness before they go to the promised land, he says, it's time to first set the margins. And one of the very first things that God does is establishes a rhythm. On the seventh day of every week, you will not work. On the seventh year, you will let the land grow fallow and recover. In the spring, you'll have three festivals, and in the fall, another three festivals. Why? So that you can be reminded in the margin that you set in your calendar that there are times when you are called to simply remember you are a human being and I am your God. He calls them to set their margins first because if you don't set the margin first, if you don't plan on your calendar to preserve and protect space and time to eliminate hurry, 
you will continue to be perpetually pooped and existentially exhausted. You know, Laura and I do this sometimes on our vacation. The last day of the vacation, you know what we'll typically do? If we're at the beach, we'll take a long walk on the beach and every time, every single time we go, we have a conversation about what's next. Where are we gonna go next time? When are we gonna go next time? What are the goals? Because if we don't, we'll get in the car and then halfway home, the entire calendar will be filled with all necessary things. And it crowds out space. And you and I as mortals need margin every day, every week, every year. There ought to be a moment in every day in which it is just you and the one who made you to protect in that space a certain distance between your load and your limits so that you can be reminded that you are more, more than your load. Is this what Paul meant when he used that glorious phrase, unforced rhythms of grace? What will you do today to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life and set the margins of you so that there is space. See, God knows that there are two kinds of time that we live in. The New Testament uses two kinds of words. There's chronos. Chronos is the Greek word that means like clock time. It's on the calendar. There are only so many minutes in an hour, so many hours in a day, so many days in a year. That's it, it's set. It's set before you, it'll be set after you. That's chronos time. But God also knows that there is another kind of time and scripture uses another word to describe it. It's kairos. Kairos time is holy time. Kairos time is, well, it's being at dinner with friends around a lazy meal and an open bottle of wine and there are jokes and laughter and you don't want the night to end. Have you ever been in a moment that you didn't want to end? It was so filled with beauty and grace and holiness. Well, that is kairos But God teaches us to set our margins first because you have to create some space in your chronos time in order for kairos to emerge. It doesn't happen on its own. What will you do to create space in your chronos for kairos to show up? Well, that usually means someone says, well, I'll take an off day. I'll I'll take an off day. And that leads me to the second thing I wanna talk to you about, how an off day is not the same thing as Sabbath. Everybody tries to take an off day. I told you last week that I try every week to take an off day and I fail most every week. But from time to time, when an off day emerges and it's happening and, and, and the sermon is wrapped up and ready to deliver to you and I can take an off day, it's glorious. But an off day is not Sabbath. See, an off day is when you get stuff done that you don't get paid for. Come on, somebody. And off days when you run errands and do chores and maybe you piddle in in the shop or you do the thing you do, you visit with some friends and it's great. You watch the game, it's great. But it's not the same thing as Sabbath. You know why? Because the most literal, literal definition of Sabbath is simply this, stop. That's, That's literally what it means. Stop. Stop. And granted, I can have a great off day and make some things out of wood or, or, or go to the gym, have a great workout or have a, a hot date with my wife. But no matter what, 
I do on my off day. Sabbath is about stopping. Think about your favorite music. The reason your music is so delightful, the reason your favorite music is your favorite music is not because of the notes that are on the page. It's because of the spaces between the notes that allow you to appreciate the notes. Right? That's, this is what the French com- composer Claude Debussy said. This is what he said. Music is the space between the notes. But then jazz master Miles Davis, who could play anything, bend all the rules of note making, is the one who says this. The space you leave is as important as the sound you make. It's not the notes you play, it's the notes you don't play. Beloved, God is trying to make some music out of you. And there are notes to be played for sure, but it's in the rests that you can hear it and understand where the movements are going and it's where you can feel when it's time to crescendo and decrescendo. It's in the rest. Sabbath means stop, but it's not easy for you and me to stop because we believe if we stop, everything unravels. That's why I love what the scripture says in Exodus chapter 12. I love this phrase. On the first day, you shall hold a solemn assembly and on the seventh day, a solemn assembly. Well, watch this. No work shall be done on those days. No work shall be done. Now, I love that phrase, but for maybe a reason that you don't know, I love it. You know, in the South, we use the word done wrongly. You know, like, and I do it all the time. I'll say, are you done with that plate? Are you done with that project? Are you done with work? When we really mean, are you finished? But it's okay, because when I hear Scripture say, on that day, no work shall be done, I hear it with a different set of ears, because that's the truth, really. No work really is ever done. But we live with the illusion that it is. So we say to ourselves and to our family, well, as soon as the project's over, I'll I'll stop and take a break. As soon as this quarter is over, or as soon as the staff is fully staffed, or as soon as we get past this next little push, then we'll take a vacation. Then we'll go somewhere. It's, It's what I refer to as the illusion of conclusion. No work is ever done. But Sabbath is an act of faith that says, while the work is not done, I will deliberately disrupt the rhythm of busyness so that it doesn't undo me. And that's the gift of God. But we have a hard time doing that, don't we? Because we believe that the sun rises when we crow rather than we crow when it rises. I especially love what I learned from Barbara Brown Taylor, she, she's talking about the first story of creation and how God took six days to create the world and at the end of the six days declares that it's very good. After humankind is created, God declares humankind to be very good before they do anything to demonstrate that they are very good. She goes on to say that Sabbath is God's invitation for you to be good for nothing. Beloved, you were declared good by God before you did a thing to prove it. You, on Sabbath, are given permission to be good for nothing. And that's why we feel, isn't it? If an hour or two goes by and we've not really produced anything, we feel good for nothing, but you have a biblical mandate giving you permission to be good for nothing. 
Yeah. An off day is different than Sabbath. Because on the Sabbath, we're called to stop. But you know what else? That same word, Sabbath, doesn't just mean stop. Literally, there is an alternate translation. And you're going to love this. It also means delight. Delight. On Sabbath, we are commanded to stop all productivity and delight. When God stopped work on the seventh day, it wasn't because God was existentially exhausted or perpetually pooped. It was so that God could turn and then delight in all that had been created and enter into relationship with all that he had made. We are called to delight in what? Delight in what? Well, to delight in being alive to delight in the, the mysteries of this profound universe, to delight in one another, in the company we share, to delight in God's grace, to delight in the pleasures of good food and friendships and laughter, to laugh and to live and to love, and I would even say to play, to play, yeah, which leads us to the subversive power of praying and playing. So when Eugene Peterson talked about the Sabbath, he put it in the most simple terms, the simplest, clearest terms. He said, when you take Sabbath, here's what it is. Sabbath is an invitation to pray and play with Jesus. Isn't that gorgeous? It's an invitation to pray and play with Jesus. Now, I think about what he said, and I, it occurs to me, when I practice Sabbath, when you practice Sabbath, does it include some kind of praying and some kind of playing? Because on the one hand, it's easy for us to assume that it ought to include some praying. I mean, that's the easy one. We all assume that's something that a preacher would say, right? Well, you got to come to church on Sabbath so we can pray together. And you're like, well, but I, I connect with God better, you know, in nature, and I connect with God when I'm hiking or at the lake or on the golf course. I know, of course you do. Everybody does. So do both. But what you can't get in any venue outside of the community of faith is you can't walk into a place like you can here and look over and say, she wants the chemo to work just like I do. And that person knows what it's like to have a spouse who forgot some vows they made. And, and this person over here is worried about their children just like I am. And in a shared space of our common humanness, there's something powerful that happens. There's a reassurance that we are not alone. And so we lift up our voices, our prayers, our anxieties, our, our hopes, and then your teachers and your pastors attempt to open the word and provoke your theological imagination so, so that we might envision a world that is different than the world we're actually living. So that upon the benediction, we go out and live in a way that demonstrates it's actually possible. So that happens when you pray together on Sabbath. There ought to be some time every day when you pray on your own. There ought to be some time every week when we gather here as the community of faith and we have set the margin. You come here together with your church family to pray a little bit on a Sunday. So praying is the easy answer. Of course on Sabbath we're going to pray 
You know what's hard is to think about playing. Playing. See, some of us have a hard time with playing, but do you know that sacred scripture is saturated with themes and examples of playfulness in the mind of God? In fact, there are places in scripture where it's not just playful as in goofing off, but playful as a subversive act. So God creates all that God creates, and then the Proverbs tell us that in chapter 8 that he delights in what he's created. But when the Latin Vulgate Bible is translated, they choose to use a word instead of delights, God plays with his created beings. Isn't that beautiful? God walks with them in the cool of the day, and I imagine walking in the cool of the day, barefoot in the grass, delighting, playing with our creator. In Psalm 104, we're told that, God, you have created Leviathan, the great sea monster, to sport in the sea, well, to play in the sea. You know, we have Leviathan today, the great humpback whales, and they, they tell us, those who study these creatures, that the whales off the coast of the U.S. can be singing a song, and sometimes the vibrations of the song can be heard off the coast of, wait for it, France. And that some of the songs are not meant for migrating. They have nothing to do with mating. They have nothing to do with, with eating. But they sing for the sake of singing. These beasts, these sea monsters. And we're told that some of them, when they crest out of the water and make such a display, that there's no real reason other than you have created Leviathan to sport in the deep. See, God creates us with the capacity to play, to laugh, to delight. David dances in 2 Samuel. God sings in Zephaniah over the people so that they might have music to sing and dance and hope with. And then Song of Solomon. One day I'm going to do, do a Song of Solomon series. It's going to be like PG-13. We're going to have a good time. Song of Solomon, these two lovers, and they can't keep their eyes off each other. And one comes running like a gazelle over the hills and leans in with his hands, fingers through the lattice, tiptoes. Now rise, my love, come and let's play. And it's all an image of God's love for you. Come away with me and play. So in these themes of festivals and feasts that God commands. It's so that we might learn something about enjoying life and being in the company of the God who has made life to be enjoyable. Is there any reason or any surprise as to why when Jesus performed his first miracle, it was to turn water into wine so that a celebration of a wedding could continue on into the night. And this is why I'm taking Latin dance lessons with my wife. Now, last week I told you that, and one of you came up and said, did you say you're taking lap dance lessons with your wife? <laughs> Latin dance lessons. <laughs> Some things don't have to be taught. <laughs> We're taking Latin dance lessons, and, and it's, it's going well, but it started out a little shaky. First lesson I'm there, and this guy, thing is, he's a great instructor. The problem is, He's this young, good-looking Puerto Rican with moves like a jungle cat, you know? And he says to me, he says, 
Well, you're not leading. You need to lead. You need to lead your wife. Your wife needs to be led. You're not leading your wife. I'm like, so now I'm a bad leader, okay? So now I'm a bad husband. Is that what's going on? He said, let me show you. Let me lead your wife. I said, let me lead you down the paths of righteousness. I want to say, you know what? Two things. Remember who's paying you, and two, give her back, you know? We're doing pretty well now on the way out. By the way, we left that lesson and Laura said, I thought you were going to Will Smith that guy. <laughs> uh, you, but now we're getting it down and it's having a good time and we're laughing about it and enjoying a moment and delighting in being alive and stepping on each other's toes. But I suspect God is delighted when his creatures are delighted. So, some of the greatest theologians out there, like these men here, Jürgen Moltmann, Samuel Keane, Peter Berger, C.S. Lewis, Joel Kaminsky, you know what they say about play? They say that, that play has eschatological significance. Eschaton, eschatology, you know, it's the study of the last things or the end times or the study of the age that's to come. They say, when you play, you are suspended in a moment in which you are pulling from the future eternity. And in a defiant kind of way, when you play, when you laugh, you subvert the very despair that keeps you thinking that this world will end in tragedy. You dance your way, you laugh your way to hope. Peter Berger put it this way. Peter Berger said, humor and play challenges the dominant tragic worldview that confines humans to a stoic acceptance of their current existence. In the moment of laughter, which usually has a T in it, that's my fault. In the moment of laughter, our human tragedy, whatever it may be, is bracketed, placed in parentheses. It's put in perspective by laughing at the imprisonment of the human spirit, the implication is that the imprisonment is not final, but will be overcome. Sabbath offers you the opportunity to laugh at the perceived imprisonment of your life once a week until you hope that future forward. Now, can I show you what that looked like this past week? Time is upon us, but I think it may be worth it. I got another letter from our HOA. It was like the fourth one in the last, you know, 10 years almost. This time, it read that we have observed weeds in your grass, in your, in your yard, your grass. We observed weeds growing. But the phrase for me was, we've observed them flowering which conjured images of someone dressed in black ops, you know, at night with binoculars, <laughs> measuring. I'm like, okay, I get it, yeah. So they sent a notice, you got X number of days to remedy the problem or else you're gonna be thrown in HOA's jail, right? And then I didn't, time passed, got another letter. We gave you a letter, gave you a warning, now you got 10 days or you're going to HOA jail. So I needed to write a letter, and they, they said, you have to give me a, a written letter in response to what your action plan is for fixing the problem. So I went through a couple of options. I thought to myself, I could be stoic, 
and just live into the stoic existence in which we find ourselves. I, I could say, message received, problem fixed, thank you very much. I even thought about going theological on them. <laughs> well, Jesus said, let the wheat and the tares grow up together, and you can take it out with Jesus if you want a religious liberty case on your hands, right? But I decided to have a little fun. I decided, well, you be the judge. So I wrote a letter. Dear friends, the notice of your yard maintenance violation has been received. As requested, the following action plan will be implemented post-haste. In researching the wide array of weed-killing products on the market, and after serious and thoughtful consideration, I decided to go with the all-new, all-in-one weed and feed from BioAdvanced Science-Based Solutions. The basis of my decision was grounded in three significant factors. Number one, it promises to kill lawn weeds, including dandelion, clover, and chickweed. Number two, it, it feeds and greens, thereby, thereby uh, strengthening my lawn. And number three, it kills crabgrass and over 200 other weeds. And they are. <laughs> so then I went to be thorough and listed all 200 just to secure their confidence in me. And after I got to the end of the long list in alphabetical order for their convenience, I, I continued. What really convinced me to go with this product, however, was the company's proprietary microfeed action, which creates a more nutritious and resilient root environment. This, I believe, is the difference maker. I mean, can you imagine a world with a more nutritious and resilient root zone environment? Inspiring, if you ask me. Understanding that it would be a violation of federal law for me to use this product in a manner inconsistent with its labeling, I plan to use a rotary spreader to apply granules evenly over my lawn. To be sure that I cover the lawn areas uniformly, I plan to first treat the border of the lawn and then fill in the center by making parallel passes, walking in a steady pass <laughs> to ensure even distribution of the granules. What I have learned in my research is that it is hard to overemphasize the importance of this methodology. To that end, I have rehearsed the spread pattern in my head <laughs> and have walked the course with an empty spreader many times now. I think I am ready. I further do not intend to apply this product in a manner that will make contact with any other person or pet, either directly or through drift. So. I do not plan to entertain company until further notice. <laughs> and I will redirect my dog to other areas of our property, obviously removing any contributions he makes to the yard in accordance with all appropriate neighborhood covenants and pertaining to pet care. All the above action steps will be taken today, Tuesday, 26 April 2022, the year of our Lord. Thank you for bringing this matter to my attention and for, getting, or, and for continuing the good work of keeping our neighborhood standards high. Sean King, resident. Yeah. Right. Man, can I just tell you how good that felt. I got a reply. All it said was, 
Thank you, Mr. King. The violation has been lifted. (laughs) But I like to think that in the law office that controls our HOA, some guy working a long hour, existentially exhausted, perpetually pooped, after sending that, said to the rest of his colleagues, get over here, you gotta read this. (laughs) Sabbath is about creating enough margin in our lives that we might be able, if only for a little while, to be still and laugh about the age to come. What will you do to ruthlessly eliminate the hurry that prevents that in your life? What will you do to create a rhythm where you can delight and pray and play and be made new?